We're in Romans chapter 12. Go ahead and turn there and we're going to look to the Lord in the word of prayer. Romans chapter 12. Let's look to the Lord in the word of prayer. Lord, I do pray that the words of my mouth would be pleasing to you. As we go through this subject again, as we begin to develop it again, talking about prophecy, what prophecy is, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would direct us, that Lord, you would clarify and clear up for some people maybe things that they have believed that were wrong that Lord you would help us to to understand in a deeper way your heart in revealing yourself to us what an amazing thing that our creator God our redeemer would stoop not only to live among us, to die for us, but then to give us a sure and a steadfast word. We thank you for your word, the prophetic word that is able to save our souls. May we give heed to it. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. So we're talking about gifts. We're going to do a little bit of a review. We're going to build on what we talked about last week, talking about prophecy. <clears throat> and then I hope to have about 15 minutes at the end to develop from 1 Corinthians an application of these things. And so we're going to have to run through again. Stay with me. We want to build on some, some, sub, some of the subject regarding spiritual gifts in general. We'll review what we talked about with prophecy, and then we'll go forward. So let's look in Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, and we're going to begin reading in verse 5, and we're going to go down to verse 8. <clears throat> so we, though many, are one body in Christ. Individually, we are members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, in proportion to our faith. If service, in our serving. The one who teaches in his teaching. The one who exhorts in his exhortation. The one who contributes in generosity. The one who leads with zeal the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So let's talk a little bit about spiritual gifts. So he says there again in verse 5, we have gifts that differ according to the grace that was given to us. And he tells us to use them. Now we talked about what these spiritual gifts are. We're just going to re rehash this. And I keep rehashing this because I want us to think about it and I want us to get it. The more we say something, the more we get it, hopefully. The adjectives are focused. We're not just talking about abilities you may have. We're talking about spiritual abilities. 
abilities that are generated by the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit took up residence within you, when you were born again, if you've been born again, and the Holy Spirit came to live within you at that moment, not at some subsequent time, at that moment, He also put within you, as a part of that, spiritual abilities. Those are in a seed form. And yet, as you grow in Christ, they develop. If you don't use it, you don't grow. If you don't use that gift, the gifts that the Lord gives you, if you never serve him the way he would have you to do it, you're going to stay stuck. And so he gives this to us to develop, to grow for his glory, to edify the body of Christ. It is for the purpose of spiritual things. This isn't just, you know, to get glory to ourselves in any way. It is to bring glory to the Lord, to accomplish spiritual fruit, and it operates in the spirit realm. So the Holy Spirit uses the words and the actions of the believer to affect other people spiritually for eternity, to edify the body of Christ. And so this is what spiritual gifts is. We looked at this verse in 1 Peter chapter 4, as each received a gift, use it to serve one another as a good steward of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks, this is the two categories, whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. And what is the purpose? To glorify you? No, it is to glorify the Lord. So that in everything, God may be glorified through the person of Jesus Christ, through the redemption that he accomplished on the cross, that then that gift, that greatest gift, brings forth fruit to eternity. And thus God is glorified. In the list that we're looking at, there are speaking gifts and there are serving gifts. Prophecy, teaching, exhortation. We're dealing with prophecy now. Uh, We will deal with teaching and exhortation, and we're going to deal with the serving gifts in two weeks. Next week we'll talk about Thanksgiving. Serving gifts are, serving is just a general category, but there is the gift of service, there is a gift of distribution or giving, there is a gift of administration, there is a gift of mercy. Now, one of the things I want to do Take a minute, we'll stop here for a second and think about something. As we're going through this, this isn't just to be theory. It's not meant to be just theory. What I'm hoping that you are doing as we go through this over the next two weeks, and as we've already studied it for several, is I hope you're evaluating yourself and asking yourself some real questions. What are my gifts? What are the abilities the Lord wants me to use? As Matt was talking about that in announcement time, what does God want me to do to serve the body of Christ, to bring glory unto him? God didn't save you for you just to come to church on Sunday morning. God saved you for you to serve him all through the week. Now, sometimes that service takes the form of specific ministries that we involve ourselves in. Sometimes that service takes the form of just the daily deeds of the believer. And those are just as important. Those are just as important. Now, as you analyze yourself, and you're thinking, okay, what are my gifts? I look at this list. 
Look at the two categories. Speaking gifts, serving gifts. This is the question I want you to begin to ask yourself as you evaluate yourself. By the way, I'm going to want you to do some very specific evaluation in a couple of weeks. And a part of that specific evaluation is going to be this. I don't only want you to evaluate yourself, because you know your evaluation of yourself is only your evaluation of yourself. You know what I want you to do as well? I want you to open yourself up to somebody who's a trusted Christian, and I want you to ask them to evaluate you. When you look at me, what do you think are my gifts? And I want us to do that, okay? And that's really open ourselves up to another person to do that. It could be a little bit scary. You know, what's this other person going to say? Now, when you look at these two categories, here's the question I want you to begin to ask yourself as you evaluate. When you think about serving the body of Christ, do you think about something you should say, first of all, or do you think about something you should do? That's going to help you get to one side of the table. When you think about serving the body of Christ, is at first the thing that comes into your mind something you need to say? Or is it, on the other hand, something you think, I need to do something? Now, all of us have a mix of this, okay? None of us are strictly on one side of the table or the other. But I think you will find that by looking at that question, it will help you think in a general sense, I am more gifted to speak the words of Christ, or I am more gifted to be the hands and feet of Christ. And it's going to begin to help you narrow it down. So that's the direction I want you to go. That's looking at gifts in general. Now, he then says, he says, okay, we all have gifts, and they differ. But we are one body. And all these gifts are given to the body to edify the body and to bring glory to Christ. And then he goes into the list. First one is what? If prophecy, in your prophesying, in proportion to our faith. Now, we looked at that phrase last week, and I want to go back through it real quickly just to recapsulate and to review some things that we dealt with on that. Like I said last week, I always look at questions. I always ask questions of the text. It's just the way I think. So when I started to think about the gift of prophecy, I wanted to think, okay, what is the gift of prophecy? Who is a prophet? Can women prophesy? How does this gift function in the body? Did the gift of prophecy cease? Are present-day prophetic words to be equated the same authority as Scripture? And then by what standard of prophecies to be evaluated or judged? Because clearly they are to be judged. It says that through the Scripture. And we'll look at some texts related to that. Now, when we think about this again, we're going to think about these questions. I want to just remind ourselves of the little definition we gave. A prophet is God's spokesman. It is a person who is speaking for God. Just think about that for a minute. Think of the gravity of that. To speak for God. 
We talked about the offices in Israel, a priest and a prophet. The priest is representing the people to God. The prophet is representing God to the people. It is the person who is saying to the people of God, thus saith the Lord. It's a word from the Lord. In that sense, in the early foundational stages of the church, we looked at this in the book of Ephesians in chapter 2, there was a gift of an office in the early church of apostle and prophet. And he says in Ephesians 4 in chapter 2 that that is a part of the foundation of the church. Thus, those offices were directly responsible for recording and writing the Word of God, the New Testament. In a sense, when that finishes up with the apostolic age, the office of the prophet ceased to be. We're not going to go back and look at all that again. But it ceased, the office, but not its function. Now, there's various ways that we can say that the office ceased. One thing just to think about is this. Think with me in your mind of the pastoral epistles. The pastoral epistles were given to us by Paul, by the Holy Spirit, to regulate the life of the church. How is the church to function? When you get to 1 Timothy chapter 3, you have the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, laying out qualification for the offices in the church. Those offices are what? Elder, bishop, pastor, deacon. There's no qualifications for an office we would call a prophet. So we would say that the gift of prophecy is functioning but it is probably doing so primarily within the office of the elder, bishop, the pastors. Not exclusively, because it does come down to every member of the church. He says we should covet to prophecy. We should desire to prophesy. But the teaching ministry, we're going to look at that to the entire congregation, although there are many teachers within the church as well. But the office itself ceased to be. It was a part of the foundation of the church. Now, having said that, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, he lays out for us that these gifts of revelation, prophecy, tongues, and knowledge, or languages, were a temporary necessity for the church. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is complete will be done away. That probably refers to the return of Christ. That when Christ returns, there will be no more need for the Word to function in our lives in the sense that it now does. I mean, think about that for a minute. When you get to heaven... I don't think people in heaven are sitting on a park bench reading the Bible. Why? Because they are now in glory with the Lord. That which is perfect is come. So 
the scripture, the prophetic word, has a temporary ministry in our life. But when we reach the stage of maturity and glory, we are with the Lord. We are known even as we also are known. It would be like somebody who's got their spouse as a member of the military and is fighting overseas. And, and that person is sending letters home to him. And while that person is overseas, you know, the wife is at home reading those letters and, and, and fellowshipping with her husband from a distance through those letters. And then all of a sudden he comes home. Should she be up in her, in her bedroom still reading the love letters from her husband? No, why? He's home. That which he's come. And so it is with the scripture. So it is with the prophetic word. It is a temporary necessity in our life. And so the, the word of God and prophecy, this, we're talking about a revelatory gift that is associated with scripture. And we looked at that in 2 Peter chapter 1. And I do want you to turn here real quick. I want you to go with me to 2 Peter chapter 1 because I want you to, these verses are very important for us. 2 Peter chapter 1. I'm not going to read everything I read last week. I'm going to read a portion of it. I want to read verse 20 and verse 21. <clears throat> Knowing this, first of all, knowing this, first of all, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. I want you to notice the word interpretation for a minute. That is a very difficult Greek word to explain. It's been translated various ways in various translations. The word essentially means to unloose something. And what is he getting at here? What he's saying is when a prophet received a word from the Lord, it was not left up to him to interpret what was saying in the writing of it. He's talking about the origination. He's not talking about, about how we interpret the Scripture as much as how the prophet received it. And we could almost say it this way. No prophecy of the Scripture had any root in the prophet's own desire. It didn't originate from him. It came from God. And he really builds on that in the next part because he says in verse 21, for, notice this, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. Paul didn't decide when he was going to write Scripture. Paul wrote many letters. We know Paul wrote at least four letters to the church at Corinth. Only two of them were inspired. Paul wrote many letters. Paul didn't decide which ones were a message from God that was inerrant and inspired. God decided that. And so it never came from the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This again shows that prophecy is a direct work of the Holy Spirit where he carries someone along in such a way that they can convey a message from God 
that is just as authoritative as the scripture. Because God never gets it wrong and God never makes errors. And this is why it says it has to be evaluated. Notice verse 2, or chapter 2, verse 1. But false prophets arose among the people just as there will be false teachers among you. And then he goes into all this. So he says, yeah, there's true prophecy. Comes from God, never comes from man. Man doesn't originate it. It comes from the will of God. But then there will always be and has always been false teachers and false prophets who claim to speak a word from God when in essence they're not. And he gives us all the things about that in chapter 2. And so prophecy must be judged. Prophecy must be evaluated. How does the gift of prophecy function in the church today? The gift of prophecy does not function in a way that enables a man to predict the future inerrantly. It doesn't. The Word of God, the prophecy functions in the church today in this way. It is the speaking forth of a message from God that He has given, that has been given to us in His Word. So when the gift of prophecy is functioning in the church, it is when either publicly or personally we speak to one another the Word of God. Now this can apply to specific situations in people's lives. Sometimes it's just the Lord impressing by His Holy Spirit a verse on you and you sharing it with other people. You may not even know why you're sharing that verse to someone else. But in sharing that verse to someone else, the Holy Spirit is accomplishing something in their life through His Word by you. And so we need to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. We need to know the Word of God and we need to speak it boldly to one another and to the world. Amen. Now there are ways that this is done in the other gifts as well. Teaching is an explanation of the Word, exhortation is an application of the Word, saying do it. Whereas prophecy is more general, and it just tends to be you and I walking in the Spirit, immersing ourselves in the Word of God, and then sharing with one another, both personally and publicly, what God is doing in your life through His Word. That's how prophecy functions in the church today. So when we're talking about prophecy, what I'm saying to you is this. We need to desire earnestly the gift, the ability to speak to one another words of God that are directly applicable to each other's lives. You see somebody that's discouraged and despondent. You know, you don't just go slap them on the, on the back and say, you know, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps kind of theology. Take the word to them. You show them a verse. And so this is the gift of prophecy. Now, we then talked about the fact that prophecy must be evaluated and prophecy must be judged. 
In other words, if somebody comes to you in either, somebody may come to you and predict the future. You need to evaluate that one. Somebody may come to you and speak to you a verse and take it all out of context. Tell you God wants you to do something from some verse, and you know what they're saying is not true. It's not what God wants for you. You have to evaluate God's word by the word. I want you to go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And I want you to notice what he says in these verses. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. At the close of this letter to the church at Thessalonica, the Apostle Paul is giving very specific commands as to things that they need to do. Things like pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks. You know, all these things that he says in just short sentence form. In verse 19, he says, don't quench the Spirit. Don't put out the Spirit's fire in your life. How do you quench the Spirit? Well, we grieve Him, we quench Him, we put out that fire when we live in sin as a believer. Another way we quench it, the Spirit of God, is when we don't listen to what He says. When He tells us to do something, and we know from the Holy Spirit He is impressing us to do something, and we just refuse to do it, we are quenching the Spirit. And so He says, do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Don't look down. Don't don't, don't denigrate prophecies. But then he says this, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Test it. Now, how do we test it? In proportion to our faith. Remember we looked at that last week? In proportion to our faith. This is the word analogia, and we looked at what this is, the analogy of faith. Uh, He's not talking about your personal faith, not your individual faith. He is talking about the body of truth that is contained in Scripture. And we looked at this long definition of what that that, that is. The analogy of faith is basically this. It It is a principle of interpretation that just says this. God doesn't contradict Himself. God doesn't say one thing to one person at one time and say something completely different to another person. And so all the Word forms a harmonious whole. And if someone comes to you and they tell you to do something, and when you look at the Word of God, you say, no, what that person is telling me to do is directly in opposition to the Word of God. You are testing the prophecy by Scripture. And that's what we're getting at here is test anything that comes into your life. You listen to Christian radio. And you hear somebody say something on Christian radio. And you're like, what? Maybe it's good, maybe it's not. Test it. Just because a Christian said it does not mean it's from God. So test it. Know the Word, test it according to the Word of God. That's what we're getting at here when we talk about the analogy of faith. Now, to develop that, I want you to go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And let's look at an illustration 
of how God's Word never contradicts itself. And if we test things by the Word of God, we're going to be okay. So I want you to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we're going to do a real quick run from chapter 11 through chapter 14. And I'm staying right on time. I'm right where I needed to be. So I think we can make it. Per square inch of the Bible, 1 Corinthians 11 to chapter 14 generates more controversy than any other part of the Bible. Hands down. First Corinthians chapter 11 through 14 is the Apostle Paul dealing with a very specific theme. The whole letter of Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is setting in order things that are a mess. This church is a mess. Chapter 5, they have a man in the church who is living in illicit sin with his father's wife. Not his mother, his father's wife. It's not his mother. And the church is boasting in his sin. Chapter 6, they're going rampantly to law against each other. Chapter 3, chapter 2, there's division in the church. Chapter 7, they're having trouble with divorce and remarriage and singleness and all those issues. I mean, this church looks like modern American Christianity. When he gets to chapter 11, he's now going to deal with a very specific thing, and it's this. Disorder in public worship. From chapter 11 to the end of chapter 14, he is dealing with that subject. At the beginning of chapter 11, he's going to deal with prayer and prophecy from men and women and what that's to look like. Second half of the chapter... He deals with another thing that is a mess in their public worship. It's the way they observe the Lord's table. And because when they are observing the Lord's table, it has become a drunken bash. God is killing many of them. Chapter 12 to 14, he deals with spiritual gifts. At the end of chapter 14, he ties it all back together. Now notice how he proceeds in chapter 11. In chapter 11, he begins by saying this, Be an imitator of me as I am of Christ. Just notice that for a minute. Can you read that verse to your kids? Imitate me because I'm following Christ. In other words, Paul, not in pride and arrogance, was confident enough that he was walking in Christ that he could tell other people, if you'll just follow me, you'll do what I do, you'll live the way I live, you'll be following Christ. He was walking so confidently in the Lord that he could assert that. We need to live under that for a minute. 
So he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And then he says in verse 2, in this next thing, I commend you. Because you remember me in everything and you maintain the traditions I delivered to you. Notice the word tradition. That word in the original language doesn't mean tradition the way you're thinking of it out there in your seat. Like tradition is, you know, we have a potluck on the first Sunday of every third week or whatever. That was a mess. But, you know, just some tradition in a church. Paul's not coming to the church and saying, you know what traditions I had and you're following them like my Christmas traditions. The word tradition there specifically means something that is handed down from the Lord. Something the Lord had handed down to be practiced in the church that Paul was delivering to the church. And so he begins by commending them. And then, in verse 17, he says this. It's kind of always like, you know, if you've got to correct somebody, start with the good before you go to the bad. In the following instructions, I do not commend you. And notice what he says here. Because when you come together as a church, it is not for the better. It doesn't bring edification. It doesn't bring growth. What does it do? It is for the worse. And then he talks about the way they are observing the Lord's table. So that's kind of the structure. And he deals with that. And then in verse 12, or chapter 12, verse 1, he says, now concerning spiritual gifts. And then chapter 12, he lays out some teaching about gifts. Chapter 13, he talks about love as having to be the thing that underlies all gifts. And if you can speak with the tongues of men and of angels, if you don't have love, you're just the gong show. If you give your body to be burned and you don't love, it profits nothing. And then he talks about what we already talked about with it is a temporary necessity. And then chapter 14, he regulates. He tells them what the gift of language is and the gift of prophecy is. He then gets to chapter 14, verse 26. And this is where I want you to go. What then, brothers? That's a question, and I want you to think about it. He's not just saying, okay, this is my next point. What he's saying here is this. I'm bringing it all together. Everything I said, chapter 11, 12, 13, and 14, is coming together now. This is my conclusion. What then, brothers? Let's read this. Now, I told you this is controversial stuff. There's plenty of controversial stuff in the verses we're going to read. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, an interpretation. Now here's his first basic premise. Let everything be done to build up the church. He says, when you come together, don't do things for the worse. Do things for the better. Build up the church. So, if anyone speaks in a language... Let there be only two, or at the most, three, each one going in turn, and someone must translate. If there is no one to translate, 
then let them all keep silent in the church. Let them speak to themselves and to God. Then he says this, let two or three prophets speak. Let the others weigh. Now notice the word weigh. This is evaluate. This is judge. What we were just talking about, let them judge what is said. If a revelation is made to another person sitting there, then let the first one be silent, for you can all prophesy one by one, so all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. Notice that again. That's an important truth there. The spirit within the prophet is subject to the prophet's control. It's not something that just happens willy-nilly where he's out of control. His spirit is subject to him. And the reason for that is this. For God is not a God of confusion. He is a God of what? Peace. Harmony. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but they should be in submission. As the law says, if there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Notice what he says next. Was it from you that the word of God came? Are you the only one that it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a what? Command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy, do not forbid to speak in languages, but all things should be done decently and in order. There's a lot to unpack there, isn't there? I said a lot of controversy in a couple of square inches of the Bible. There's a whole lot of them right there. Maybe we'll just skip the part about women being silent in the church. What does that mean? What does that mean? Does that mean... That on Sunday when you come in, just to be safe, we'll give you all you ladies a piece of duct tape to put over your mouth so you don't speak in the church? What does he mean there? Now, I want you to go back to chapter 11. And I want you to see something, because this is very important. This, the verses that we just read have generated tons of controversy in the church. Now, in chapter 11, notice what he says in verse 3, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Now, what does head mean there? Leader. Christ, Jesus, and God the Father are co-equal from all eternity. But Jesus Christ submits himself to the Father. And the Father 
stands in a position of headship to him, although they are equal. This is what we're talking about with headship. So he says there, I want you to know something. The head of the man, the one to whom the man specifically submits under, is Christ. That Christ is his leader. Not that Christ is not a leader of a woman. He clearly is. But not in a headship function within the family or even within the church. So the head of the man is Christ. The head of what? The head of the wife is her husband. I am not the head over anybody else's wife. I only stand in a position of headship over my own wife, correct? In a leadership position. But that headship does not in somehow or some way subordinate my wife to me in a sense of equality before God. No, not at all. It's a leadership thing. Now notice what he says in the next verse. Remember, we're talking about public worship here. This is clearly what he's talking about in this text. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean if I preached with a hat on, I'm dishonoring my head who is Christ? Or if I pray with my hat on. And we don't have time to delve any deeper into it than that. And I just put it as a question for you to think about. Then he goes on and he says what? Every wife or woman who prays or prophecies, prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, which is who? Her husband. since it is the same as if her head was shaven. We can, we're not time to read the rest of the text. In that verse, Paul is clearly taking it for granted that women are doing what two things in worship? Praying and what? Prophesying. He's taking it for granted. Correct? Wouldn't that be a fair reading of that verse? In that verse, Paul is saying, if a man prays or prophesies with his head covered, he dishonors Christ. If a woman prays or prophesies, she dishonors her husband. She's standing in a position of headship over him. But you would have to say from that verse that Paul is taking it for granted that women and men are both praying and prophesying. How does that then dovetail with chapter 14? Go back to chapter 14. Do we have a contradiction in the Word? Because what does he say in, in the Word in chapter 14? I do not what? I do not permit a woman to pray or prophesy because I don't let her speak. So how does that go together? Here's how it goes together. 
in the specific context, Paul is talking about two things in chapter 14. He is talking about an official function and an official work. The official function is the prophetic teaching of the word. And along with that is the evaluation of what is being taught. And then he says to the women, I don't let women participate in that. I do not let them speak. Why? What is Paul trying to preserve? Here's why. If I preach on a Sunday morning, my wife would never do this. She's so sweet and lovely. You all know my wife, but I'll use her as an illustration. If I was preaching on a Sunday morning and I botched it, I mean, I really blew the text bad. And my wife stood up and said, Tim, you got that all wrong. This is what that verse means. What did she do? She put herself in a position of headship over me by evaluating it. And what Paul is saying is this. In order to preserve the created order of headship and leadership, if Tim botches it in a sermon, Keith Klein needs to get up and say, Tim, you blew it. What you said is not true. And correct me in the church, because it was an error. Okay, so let's go to the small group. You're sitting around a small group. And you're doing kind of what he's talking about in this verse. Matt brought his small group lesson. Bob Benished it, or my son, or, or Todd. And you brought a lesson. And, and you studied through the Word of God. And then you're giving insights that you saw in the Word. Can women give insights they saw in the Word? Clearly. But let me just suggest to you, ladies, as you're sitting around the living room and your husband blows it, he says, I think this is what the verse meant. I really saw this in that verse. And you look at him and you kick him and you say, you're all wet. That's a bunch of baloney. Do you think, ladies, that you should do that in that small group? No. Why? Because you got out of that created order. And that's why he says, then when you go home, ladies, and you get in the car, tell them all about it. I mean, tell them where he blew it. But be careful that you don't step out of the created order, the order of creation. I'm, I'm like getting way out of time, but it's very important to consider how God created Adam and Eve. When God created Adam and Eve, he did so very specifically. And it was important. God does everything according to very specific purpose and plan. When God made Adam and Eve, did he make them both at the same moment? You know the story. Did he? No. He made who first? Adam. Who did he? Adam was made from what? The dirt. Eve was made from what? Adam. Who named Adam? God. Who named Eve? Adam. This is the created order. God was doing something specifically in the way he created men and women. He was teaching something. Now, where did God create the woman from? A what? A rib. Wow. 
Why did he do that? Why didn't he take a bone from his foot? Why didn't he take a bone from his head? What is he teaching? She's side by side. She's your equal. But I put you in a position of authority and leadership. This is the created order. Now, this is where I, I'm going to close with this. I know you're ready to go. So, women pray and prophesy. Women can pray and prophesy. Here's the way it works. Number one, women are to pray and prophesy in a way that supports male leadership within the church. Number two, women pray and prophesy informally, not officially. And we could go to 1 Timothy chapter 2 and look at that. Where Paul says, I don't allow a woman to be in a position of teaching the congregation in an official capacity. He says, I don't let that happen. It's interesting to note. Elizabeth, in the Gospel of Luke, is clearly prophesying when Mary comes to her. Isn't she? And she's doing so personally. But not as an official prophet to God's people speaking in the synagogue. And then she is not to do so in a way that would correct or evaluate. Okay, so here's Paul's chief concern. One underlies the other, and then I'll shut up and close. What Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, when he says, I don't allow a woman to speak, and we correlate that with chapter 11, is he's trying to do something. He is trying to preserve the created order. Men, God has made you to be the leader, the spiritual leader in your home and in this church. And God wants to preserve that. That's what Paul is trying to do here. That's the specific. But here's Paul's chief concern. And I want us to see this. I want you to notice what he says in verse 37. If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are what? You want to say it back to me? They are a what? A commandment from who? The Lord. Paul's chief concern in what he writes here is this. Paul wants the church to build its practice on what Christ commands, not the whims of changing culture. Culture changes all the time. We live in a culture right now, I mean, what we're saying here is not very well received by the culture at large, is it? What we're saying here is not very well received by many branches of the church. Paul's concern is not what the culture is doing. Paul's chief concern is what did the Lord command? 
my friend, I will suggest to you, I will not suggest, I will say to you, that should be our chief concern in whatever we do. Not what the culture tells us is good. Not what the culture says will conform you and not get you canceled. Our chief concern must always be what did the Lord command? And to build our practice on that. The Lord said these words in Matthew 5. It reminded me of what Keith read to us in James chapter 3 when he says, don't many of you be teachers knowing as such we're going to give more accountability. In Matthew 5, he says this, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and then teaches others to do so also will be least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches will be great. When we look at what the Lord commands in his word, he is not suggesting to us what we should do. He is telling us, this is my command. And I expect you to build this way. The culture may not like it. You know what? Someday we give an account to the Lord, not Facebook. Let's close. We thank you, Lord, for your word. And we thank you for your truth. Lord, sometimes your word is controversial. We thank you that it's never contradictory. Help us, Lord, to understand your word, to practice it, to build upon it. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing our closing song together?
your word, for the truth that we read together this morning. Lord, help us, Lord, to be united as the body. Lord, not to, not to be a church in disarray, but to support one another, to encourage one another. All the more as we see a day approaching. Lord, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. You are dismissed.